0: Hello and welcome to another Industry Careers for PhDs podcast brought to you by Cheeky Scientist. I'm your host, Isaiah Henkel, and today we will be talking with Craig Peterson um, on immigration issues for international PhDs. If you're interested in getting access to the full interview, um, and as well as getting access to all of our job search materials, our complete job search blueprint for PhDs, and our private job referral network for PhDs, go to cheekyscientist.com backslash association to learn how to become an associate. Um, If you would like these podcasts, as well as our uh, free articles sent to your email inbox, uh, go to CheekyScientist.com, and you can enter your name and email on the homepage and these will be delivered to you um, as they come out Uh, and of course you can listen to the rest of these podcasts on iTunes at any time. Uh, So once again we will be talking with Craig Peterson uh, on immigration issues for international PhDs and we'll jump in now.
1: Welcome Craig and tell him uh, how excited you are for for this webinar today. Craig again, thank you for being here with us.
2: Thank you, that's a, a very nice intro. Yeah,
1: well, you, you make it easy with your accomplishments. So, uh, really, yeah, I really appreciate you being here. You know, obviously we have a lot of, uh, PhDs, uh, postdocs, some PhD, uh, graduate students on, and they always have a lot of questions about what their visa options are, especially relevant to people who might be in the sciences or in these advanced degree programs or, or after their advanced degree programs. So maybe, we can just kind of do a brief overview and talk about what circumstances that people, you know, I guess what the visa options are or the citizenship options are, and then what are the different circumstances behind all of them? And maybe we can kind of break it down into non-immigrant, so temporary visas and and permanent resident
2: or, or, or green cards. Sure. I wonder if you could, and maybe this is a guess on your part, but any idea how many of our listeners might be inside the United States right now or versus outside? Yeah, great question. So if you're in the United States, why
1: don't you type in yes? If you're not, why don't you type in no into the chat box? I can tell you in our association overall, um we we have the majority of our international PhDs. Uh, actually it's probably about half and half. Of our international PhDs, half of them are in the US trying to stay and half are outside uh trying to uh come back or or move or move in. Uh, on right now it looks like the majority though, however, are currently in the US.
2: Okay. That's helpful. Okay, well let me just start with a um, quick overview of the different categories that we see most often used by um, scientists and researchers and PhDs. Um, on the temporary side, and this would apply, one of these is going to apply to those individuals that are already in the United States. Um, very commonly, the H-1B, which you mentioned earlier, and this is for people that are uh, coming to work in a professional capacity, the H-1B permits, uh, is it's for what's called a specialty occupation. So, a specialty occupation is a job that requires, as a normal minimum for entry into the field, at least a bachelor's degree in a particular field. So the, the most classic sort of an H-1B is a is a job as a chemist and the individual has a degree in chemistry. So that's a, a classic H-1B. Um, <clears throat> H-1Bs are are used probably most commonly because frankly that's probably the easiest one to, to qualify for. Um, the H-1B has is limited in numbers. We'll find, for example, uh, people that are working for private companies and I understand that this audience may have a particular interest in moving from the academic environment into the non-academic environment, private industry, that sort of thing. A very important thing to know about the H-1B is that uh, outside of universities and government research organizations and and affiliated um, organizations, there's a a strict limit on the number of H-1Bs that are granted each year. So we just got finished filing this year's crop of H-1Bs, and uh, I would expect we're going to see about 250,000 or more H-1Bs went in uh, during this past week. And um, only 85,000 of those can be approved. So that's that's the big issue in H-1Bs is, is can we get one even if we're qualified? Um, so we can circle back to that if there are questions. Um, other common non-immigrant temporary statuses that we see is, uh, for example, the J-1. This is an exchange visitor visa and the purpose of this visa is to enable people to come from other countries into the United States in a variety of different capacities. There are, I believe, 13 different categories of J-1s. There are students, there are professors, there are research scholars, there are other um, categories such as trainees and camp counselors and people simply working over the summer uh, that are in in, um, academic programs in their home countries and so it's used for a variety of different cases but it is used a lot for scientific researchers. That's a visa that is operated by the U.S. Department of State and and again its primary function is exchange. So the whole idea with the J-1 is people come to the U.S. for a period of time, a particular purpose, and at the end of that program, the hope is that they go home and say good things about the United States. So it's a tool of public diplomacy, is what it is. Um, so, so the goal of moving from that university in the United States, uh, where you may have pursued a PhD or done a postdoc on a on a J-1 visa, into industry may get complicated by a feature that some J-1 users have this obligation to return home for two years before getting an H-1B or a green card permanent residence. Um, sometimes that applies, sometimes it doesn't. Um, so it, it, it doesn't, in a lot of cases it does not apply at all, um, but you know we, we'll circle back to that as well. Uh, so then we see the O-1 and this is for um, individuals of extraordinary ability. Extraordinary ability generally means um, people that have risen to the top of their field. And there's a variety of categories of evidence that the uh, immigration agencies look at to see whether you qualify. They're looking at prizes and awards, they're looking at publications, they're looking at um, original contributions in the form of, uh, well, it might be publications, but it might be patents as well. They're looking for discussions about your work in the scientific literature or in major media. Uh, They're looking for other indicators of distinction that might be a very high salary compared to others. Um, So you have to have a few things. You've got to have information in, in several different categories to qualify for that one. And that the O1, the way that that is structured, is kind of similar to a couple of the green card options that we see. Um, and then we have a couple of others, the, um, the F-1 student visa. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, several of our listeners aren't on the F-1 student visa right now pursuing their PhDs. So the F-1 um, allows just that, to pursue the academic program, but then after graduation it also has uh, an employment option called optional practical training. And people that are have degrees in science, technology, engineering, or mathematics can first get 12 months of practical training, and then they can extend it for up to 24 additional months for a total of 36. So that's very helpful, particularly in these cases where it's difficult to get an H-1B simply because of the numbers. Uh, Another thing that we see, this is not for employment specifically, but people do come occasionally to do, simply to do independent research, and that can be done under visitor visa doesn't allow for any employment, hmm. um, so it can not be something where there's a U.S. employer or even a foreign employer, but um, uh, it, it permits research for up to six months. So, so those are the most common non-immigrant status. So non-immigrant essentially means temporary, people that are coming here for a particular purpose, for a period of time, but are not pursuing permanent residence. Okay? Hmm none of those, none of those categories itself will turn into <laughs> permanent residence. Uh, some people think if I simply stay here um, a certain number of years as an H-1B that I become a permanent resident. No, that doesn't happen. Um, now you, you can, uh, while in an H-1B, and this is really, the H-1B is the best of these categories for people that do intend to seek permanent residence, uh, because, because the H-1B has what's called dual intent. It can be used for by people that intend to remain in the U.S. temporarily and then leave. It can be used by people that, that are actually in the process of applying for permanent residence. None of the others is quite as um, comfortable in terms of uh, being harmonious with a permanent residence process. Um, for example, the, the the B visa for visitors, or the F visa for students, These are visas that in order to have it, in order to get one and keep it, you must have a residence outside the United States and no intention of abandoning it. And so someone in one of those types of statuses that is going to launch a permanent residence process needs to understand that there are conflicts there. And sometimes it can be done if there aren't other options, but there are certain things that need to be managed there so and what we can circle back and I know that a lot of this um, session will be question-answer so uh, we can certainly come back. Um, some of the hmm. permanent options that we see um, in the terminology here, I'll, I'll, I'll go at this a couple of different ways. Some of you are familiar with these terms, some are not. Um, EB1, and that is shorthand for an employment-based permanent residence option in the first preference. Okay? EB1 um, has a few different types of application. One of them is what's called an alien of extraordinary ability a lot like the 0 01. It, in fact, it has the same categories of evidence and the standard is, is described very similarly for people that, again, have reached the top of their field. Um, so extraordinary ability. And then there's one called outstanding professor or researcher. That's also an EB-1 and then the third kind is for multinational executives and managers and these are people that work for companies that have that might be headquartered in the united states or might be headquartered abroad and they have at least one subsidiary or branch office or affiliated company affiliated by common ownership somewhere else and it's possible to um, to pursue a green card through that The nice thing about these EB1 categories, all three of them, is it is not required for the U.S. employer to first go and search the U.S. labor market to see if there are qualified U.S. workers. That process is called labor certification, and it is not required for any of those EB1 categories, Um, so that uh, that's nice. Um, the next one we see is the EB-2. So again, employment-based, second preference. Um, you've got uh, what we see there most commonly is the advanced degree professional. And of course, if you are with a PhD, you have an advanced degree, uh, but it's more than that. It can be a master's degree. It can be a professional degree, like a law degree or a medical degree or veterinary degree. Um, it can also be... Uh, if the job requires at least a bachelor's degree plus five years of post-baccalaureate experience, that can be considered an advanced degree for purposes of applying in that EB-2 category. So we see those, um, and this is where the national interest waiver falls as well, the EB-2. So national interest waiver cases They share this nice feature with the EB1s in that no labor certification is required, so no requirement to show that there are no qualified US workers. In fact, that's what's being waived in the National Interest Waiver. The waiver of the requirement to have a labor certification and even the requirement to have a job offer. So those those things are waived in the National Interest Waiver. And let me backtrack just a little bit to EB1. The extraordinary ability Um, type of application that does not require a job offer either. So none of the EB1s require labor certification and the extraordinary ability category goes further by not requiring a job offer. The other two, the outstanding professor and researcher and the multinational executive and managers, those both require um, permanent or at least indefinite job offers from the um, US employer. Okay as does the EB-2 Advanced Degree Professional. That requires a job offer. Um, the National Interest Waiver does not. There's also an EB-3 and these are for professional and skilled workers. Um, certainly you can do that if you have a PhD or an advanced degree, but generally the EB-2 category is going to be preferable for in, in most cases. Uh, and of course the EB-1 is, is even more preferable. Now there is a some of you that are from india and china are are wondering you know why why does it take us so long to get through this whole process where a person from canada or the uk for example might be able to go through much more quickly and and this is a structural issue with the us immigration system with with the green card process the permanent residence process there are 140,000 new ones available each year across all of the categories Okay. So, there, there is a fairly large proportion, 28%, almost a third of them are set aside for these EB1 categories. And because not that many people qualify under any of the EB1 categories, they don't use them. Uh, so, so there's never, they never run out of EB1s simply because people don't, don't qualify. Um, now, so the ones that don't get used, they do spill down to the next category, the EB-2, so that increases those numbers. However, we do see more people that do qualify for the EB-2 categories, okay? So aside from uh, dividing the total number of 140,000 up between these categories, we have a further division. There are per-country limits, and so the nationals of any given country cannot Claim more than seven percent of the total um, quota okay? this is where our problem and the real disparity comes in because we we don't find our our permanent residence applicants coming from around the globe in equal numbers distributed everywhere. Uh, there are definite patterns. There are many, many more applicants from India and China than there are from Iceland or Cameroon, for example. Hmm. So, you know, Iceland and Cameroon, they never approach using 7% of any of these categories. But from India, um, they do. They exceed it every year. And what happens when, the, when that 7% quota is reached, that's all the that people from India get that year. And that means that they go into the queue and they, and this queue has gotten to be very long, and they wait until they, until they reach the front of that queue before they can take the last step toward permanent residence. I've got a, my website is on there. I've got an, it's sort of old now, but I've got a blog posting on this about why uh, some people take longer than others, but it's still accurate. Uh, so if you want to look at that for a re- yeah. That's Yeah. No, that's, that's great. And I'm going to, I'm going to jump in real quick
1: because we have some specific questions, and I want to touch on a couple of the, uh, most frequently asked questions, uh, but uh, yeah, I will remind for those of you that are on here: go to uh, www.opimmigration.com. Um, you see the URL um, below Craig's picture. Uh, some good resources there. So thanks for that overview, Craig. I really appreciate it. Um, a lot of a lot of listeners, do, you know, they don't really understand what the different options are. Um, certainly, they have a hard time figuring out figuring out which options are best for them first i want to ask just overall craig and i know it's on a case by case basis like you just said you know what country you come from and so forth but if you are an international phd you want to work for a company in industry on average what is the fastest the most effective way to make that happen one way or another i mean besides getting you know married or whatever but in terms of finding an employer to sponsor you like what Let's just go right to the heart of the matter. What's, what's the, the best, best
2: practices? Well, the, f- the first option is the H-1B. Um, that is, um, it's more cost effective than some of the other options. There's a little bit less work that goes into it. So if an H-1B is available, either because we're, we're filing you know, right now at the start of the season, or if you're going to work for a, for a university that's not subject to that annual limit, we always look at the H-1B first. Um, and that can be arranged in as little as uh, 30 days or less, mm-hmm. so so that's faster uh, than than the other options and it's cheaper. Um, when that's not available though for private industry jobs, as most of the year it isn't, we have to look at other things. Um, so the other thing that we would first look to is an O-1. So so can do we have enough um, in the, in terms of publications and distinctions to support an O-1 application? um another thing we could look at um and this is actually cheaper but it's a little bit of a of a conflict Uh, the j1 as i mentioned has this trainee option and if a person has completed a degree outside of the united states it is possible to come in for on-the-job training um, at a u.s employer now this isn't for the purpose of of keeping that employee long-term that's that's not really the purpose of the j1 it's to send people home um, but if, if simply getting some skills and exposure to the U.S. employment um, market and uh, working at a U.S. employer is the goal, then the J-1 can facilitate that. Hmm. So we look at the H-1B first, and then we look at the O, and we might look at the J depending on what the goals and requirements are. Well,
1: let's okay, let's and let's flip it around because we're always encouraging the attendees to look at it from the a company's mm-hmm. point of view. So let's say I'm an employer and I want this candidate bad and I'm going to do whatever it takes. Money's not an issue. What's the fastest way to get them hired and their an international PhD? Uh,
2: it's still an H-1B if they're available and, uh, and the O-1. And if I really want, if I'm the employer, I really want that person and I want to keep them, you know, it would be in that order, the H-1B and the O-1. And then the J-1 if we can't do anything else. Um, and there's no other option outside of
1: that, even for permanent residents? It, it all has to well, go through. Sure, there,
2: there are, but but then you have to drop the word fast. <laughs> um, mm. So if, I, if, I, if we have an international PhD who's outside the United States, if, even if we're really good and we've got lots of publications and distinctions and we would qualify for the EB1 extraordinary ability, um, it's going to take a month or more to put that together and file it it is possible to pay a little extra money for expedited processing and have them, uh, the immigration agencies look at that in about two weeks. Mm. That sounds fast, but getting that approved does not enable someone to simply enter the United States. That is, that's what's called the petition. But after approval of that, when we have someone who is outside the US, that approval goes to the US Department of State and, and then we start what is probably a six-month process to set someone up for an immigrant visa at the U.S. consulate. So, so there's nothing fast about that, really. Uh, not faster than the H, and it's not faster than the O1. Uh, so it's six or, months still, even yeah, if it's no least, yeah. Right, and there's and this is, again, this is for people outside the United States. Somebody that's inside the United States. Um, there is a different option for finishing up. We still have the same requirement to file a petition, we can probably get it expedited with an extra filing fee, Uh, but then there's something called adjustment of status, and that is changing a person from whatever status they have in the U.S., let's say it's an F-1 or or an H-1B, into a permanent resident, and then that's much more stable, the person can keep working, they have access to a different... Oh, great, so if they're already in the U.S., there are advantages. More options. Okay. And divide it now. Now again, let me just back up. We have these. If you're from India or China, or we're applying through the EB three category, where we're where we're out of numbers, you can't uh, you can't finish the process. Um, you can file the petition. OK, but the petition doesn't grant anybody any additional right to stay, nor does it provide work authorization. So this is where these um, per country limits raise their head again, and, and it may or may not um, uh, provide anyone with uh, any additional abilities. They may still be stuck with uh, moving into an H-1B or an O-1 to uh, extend their stay. OK, so if I have a worker here that's from
1: India and I want to keep them no matter what, my best option is an EB3 or an HB1 still.
2: Yeah, I'm still right because we still have to figure out how do I keep that person legally inside the United States? How do I keep that person employed? So most commonly the um, this individual may have completed a PhD in the U.S., so they're most likely on an F1 visa. So again, you can get probably up to three years if we're talking a, a scientific um, field. Um So we can get that on the um student visa But then what we're trying to do though at the same time is we're trying to get an H1B. So we may file and uh, as I said, about 250,000 will be filed. Only 85,000 can be approved. So they run this by a lottery. So they take the 250,000, they pull out 85,000 to process and the rest of them get sent back to the uh, petitioner. And no amount of money can overcome this. No, not think. that. No, okay. no that's uh, that is simply embedded in the law, and uh, you know maybe we'll see a, a revision of it. But um, as as for now, that it's been that way since 1990, actually. Right. One one question that came up that premium processing was it suspended by the new administration or not? It was it was suspended, but only for H-1Bs. Um, okay. So it's suspended for those applications starting April 3rd, so this Monday. Uh, Premium processing is still available for O1s. It's still available for some permanent residence applications, but not H1Bs. We talked about the caps, I think, on the O1 and a few others. Who
1: decides whether, um, so for the OPT, the job must be related to a major or field of study. Who decides whether your major relates to that job or school? So who's making those decisions?
2: It's It's the government, correct? Um, Well, they don't really look very closely at that. In in the initial instance, it is the what's called the designated school official at the school. They're required Mm -hmm. to recommend practical training. Those DSOs may or may not inquire into what kind of job a person has lined up. In fact, you're not even required to have a job lined up to apply for OPT and receive it. Um, so it, it generally doesn't come up. However, it certainly is a feature of practical training that the work is related to the field of study. And so in a case, for example, where someone is mid-OPT and they go home and they have to apply for a new visa, they go into the consulate and the consular officer may ask about what kind of job are you doing. At that point, the consular officer could say that job doesn't relate to your field of study, so you don't get a visa. That conversation could happen with somebody entering the United States during their practical training. Um, so, it, so it could come up at, at various junctures, but at the initial threshold of applying, it, it typically isn't asked.
1: Mm, thank you. Going back to H-1Bs, why can't academic—and this is from Prachi—why can't academic H-1B be transferred to an industry H-1B, or can it?
2: well sometimes it can um now keep in mind the academic world is not subject to this annual limit on h1b so so the university of wherever can get an h1b anytime it wants to mm. um you know, that limit of 85,000 doesn't apply to them uh but if we are going to move from academia where we don't have that limit into private industry where we do have that limit well there has to be an available h1b so that's that's the usually the problem there is if somebody wanted to move from the University of Minnesota where I am to a private employer, well, if we've missed the deadline for filing, they've all been used up, there isn't one to apply for. That H-1B can't um, it, it works fine at the university but, but not outside Now, one exception to that is something that's called concurrent employment and this is where people have two H-1Bs and this is possible so if you have an H-1B at the university and a private industrial employer files its own H-1B so long as the individual maintains employment at both places then that private industry H-1B can be used but it can't be used beyond the expiration. So we have to have concurrent throughout. Um, So when when the university's H-1B expires, then the H-1B for private industry would also expire. But some people have have been able to do this by having a part-time university job and a part-time or even full-time private industry job, but it requires both of them together, uh, until that point where that private employer can get an approved uh, H-1B in that year's annual quota or the next year or whatever it may take. So okay,
1: this, and this is that was going to go in my next line of questioning. So, let's say a university sets up a collaboration with a company, um, which does happen in various forms and is depending on the university. If you are on a university H-1B, which again there's no limit, uh, you can continue to you can work at that industry company as part of that collaboration, and, uh, even though you're not approved for an industry H-1B. That's what you're saying, correct?
2: Well, you would, you would have to, if you're, if the university is the petitioner, you can work for the university. Now, there might be some collaboration with a private company, but the employer and the, and the source of the payroll, all of that has to be the university. Mm -hmm. Um, there are, this annual cap has some, has some exceptions as well. And this is for, in, in a collaboration scenario, like you suggested, if an individual working for a private employer, is working at the university, not employed by the university, but working at the university in some collaborative project that is somehow closely connected to the university's research or teaching mission, then that H-1B could be considered exempt as well from that annual limit. So there are some cases where a private employer um, uh, that's typically subject to the cap, because of the nature of the job or the project, might find a, a way to to get around and be exempt from the cap for that particular role.
0: Thank you for joining us for another Industry Careers for PhDs podcast. If you're interested in attending one of these interviews live, or if you're interested in getting access to the full interview, including all of the background materials and show notes, go to cheekyscientist.com backslash association and learn how to become a associate uh, you can get on the wait list for the next association enrollment period there and learn full details about the program. It's a program specifically designed to help PhDs transition uh, into top industry positions. If you would like to see receive more of these interview highlights uh, via our podcast, uh, sent directly to your email, go to CheekyScientist.com and email subscribe under where it says Start Here. If you haven't already, you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Um, Until next week, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.